before we go too far into the lesson tonight, let me take just a moment of time to say how much I appreciate uh, the kindness and the generosity that everyone has extended to me and my family. The meals that have been prepared, the kind words that Jonathan must have paid y'all to say, it is a great blessing for us, uh, Tanya and myself, to be here to uh, see the congregation of which uh, our children are working with and to better get to know uh, the individuals that we hear so much good about uh, from them. And it is certainly a blessing for us. From the title of the lesson, Faith in the Blood, uh, and I debated in my mind whether I mentioned this at the beginning or somewhere later on in the lesson. Uh, I'm going to mention several hymns tonight in the lesson. I did not tell Reagan uh, any of those song titles. Uh, I just, he had asked, and I told him what the lesson was going to be about, and those were his selections. and. You did an excellent job, and I appreciate especially that last song that we sang. I hope you will understand why uh, as we go through the lesson tonight. Before we actually get into the Bible study, what I want you to do is to just take a moment of time to think about the animal sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. The law of Moses was given, and there were feasts and uh, ceremonies and, and sacrifices that were all specified that would take place, both on the national level, at the family level, and even at various ceremonies and things of that nature, and, and voluntarily things that would be sacrificed to God. Think about all those sacrifices that were made for sins thousands of years before Christ came. Imagine how a man would bring a harmless lamb, take him to the priest. The priest would then kill that lamb. He would offer its shed blood as a sacrifice against the sins of the man who had brought it. A lamb. Unbeknownst to it whatsoever, it doesn't know what's going on. And that happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. It is probably impossible for us to really visualize the rivers of blood that was shed from millions of sacrificed animals through the thousands of years before Christ ever came. But I think that even if we cannot visualize all the blood that all of those sacrifices, all that blood that was shed, what we can understand is that none of that blood had the power to forgive sins. 
Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. Even though that blood of millions upon millions of animals was shed through thousands of years, none of it could take away anyone's sins. But what that blood of those animals did was something tremendously important. All the actions of those Levites, all the actions of those priests, all the actions of the Israelites that would take that lamb to the, to the priest to have offered as a sacrifice plays an important part in our life today. Because all of those things pointed toward Christ coming and shedding His blood as a sacrifice that really could cover the sins of mankind. Think about what we read in John chapter 1 and verse 29. In the early days of Jesus being here upon this earth, we see that John comes and sees Jesus coming toward him. And in John 1.29, we have the words of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John would have had a better understanding, at least be able to better visualize the amount of blood that was shed with those animal sacrifices because he would have been in and around the temple when those things were going on. But he saw Jesus and he explained, he exclaimed the idea, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when the New Testament tells us about Christ, it's telling us about how He willfully shed His blood on the cross as a sacrifice. He gave Himself. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 tells us, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, the blood of animals, the bulls and goats, the blood that was shed with those, that couldn't take away sin. And the Hebrew writer makes the point that they did that time and time and time again. Each year, the whole high priest would take that into the most holy place. Here, Jesus Christ took his own blood into the most holy place, and it was offered once and for all. And friends, what I hope that we to come away with tonight is to have an understanding that our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ is essential to us being a child of God. If you are a Christian, you believe in the blood of Christ because faith in the blood is essential to being a child of God. It is essential to us being a Christian. Think about what we read in John chapter 6. Turn with me there. John chapter 6. I'll give you an example of what we're talking about. John chapter 6 beginning at verse 53. This is in the chapter where Jesus has said a couple of times, probably three or more times, 
that I am the bread of life. I am the bread which came down from heaven, verse 41. I am the bread of life in verse 35. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread. And in verse 52, the Jews quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of, of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's focus in on the, the idea of the blood that is being described there. Drinks my blood abides in me. My blood is drink indeed. What Jesus said about the people eating his flesh and drinking his blood obviously involves faith in his blood. Now we understand that he's talking about something that is yet to pass because at this point in time he has not offered himself on the cross. His blood has not been shed. He's talking about people after the fact, after his sacrifice, figuratively eating his flesh, drinking his blood. We'll say a little more about that a little later. But they have to have faith in his blood. If one doesn't believe in the blood, he can't figuratively drink it, like Jesus told him he would. And if we're not drinking it, what did he say? We're not having fellowship with him. We're not abiding in him. It's he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood that abides in Jesus. The second way that we know that faith in Christ's blood is essential is because it is a part of believing in Jesus. Go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. We know that Christ's blood is essential because that, that's part of believing in Jesus. Now, if you're reading from other translations, you might notice that there's some differences in the translations of those verses. Let me read you a couple other translations. The English Standard Version Verse 25 and 26. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The New American Standard, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, even though the text is translated a little differently, what is still clear is that faith in Jesus in verse 26 involves faith in the blood in verse 25. Given as a propitiation by his blood through faith. We see that connection between the faith in Jesus and a faith in his blood. When we talk about believing in blood, we're not talking about just the idea of believing that Jesus' blood was shed. But believing that that blood is what is the propitiation for our sins. It is what is offered like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It was the blood of those bulls and goats that were taken into the holy place, the most holy place, and offered there before God as a reminder of the sins of those people. It wasn't just the fact that the animal shed his blood. They took that literal blood into the tabernacle, into the temple. And it's not just an idea of, oh, I believe that Jesus' blood was shed. I believe that his hands were pierced. I believe that his side was split. I believe that his blood poured forth. It's that that blood of Jesus Christ is able to save us from our sins. That it is the propitiation and there is saving power in his blood. Now we also know that faith in Christ's blood is essential. Because people who despise Christ's blood will be condemned. Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 29. Let me start in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why is that? Because Christ has died once and for all. Once and finally. There is only one sacrifice that was needed to cover the sins of everybody that ever will, ever has lived on this earth. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? We see how important the blood of Christ is. How much sore punishment, how much worse punishment for those. He's comparing, contrasting, if you will, 
the punishment of the Old Testament with punishment for those that would despise the blood of Jesus Christ. Those that would trample, that would, that would call it a common thing. So while it is possible for someone to believe in the power of Christ's blood and still not be a Christian, it is not possible to really be a child of God without believing in the power of Christ's blood. Let me say that one more time so that you understand. It is entirely possible for someone to believe in the power of the blood of Christ but not do anything about it and therefore not be a Christian. But it is not possible for someone who is a Christian to not believe in the power of the blood of Christ. Let me show you some Bible teaching that we as Christians believe about the blood of Jesus Christ. First off, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Notice that word redeemed there. The word redeemed is the idea of being released through a payment of ransom. You've been convicted of crime. The judge has sentenced you to... Uh, some punishment and someone comes along and, and pays a price so that you can be released that's the idea of redemption, that's the idea of being redeemed when the Bible says in verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 1 talking about Christ giving his own life as a ransom to set us free from sin and to set us free from our former life. We were in bondage to sin. This is again where there are excellent parallels between our lives today and the lives of the Israelites in Egypt. The Egyptians had the Israelites under bondage. God released them. And a price was paid with the death of the firstborn throughout all Egypt. And the Israelites released. They were taken out of bondage. They were then set free. And the Hebrew writer makes that point and tells us that those things were of an earthly nature. We have something so much greater, so much better in Jesus Christ. With His precious blood, we are set free. The ransom has been paid. It's like the freedom that is mentioned in John 8 and verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 tells us that's all accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by his blood. One of the hymns that we sing that reminds us of that is the, the song Redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. We're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 5. Thinking about other aspects that we see within the scriptures and what it teaches us about the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now that idea of the word justified denotes being made or declared right. Again, the idea of the standing before a judge. And you have been uh, accused of a wrongdoing. And the judge in talking to you obviously understands that, yes, you've admitted to the fact, I did that wrong. And the judge realizes that. And then whether paying a price for a penalty or seeing remorse in you, what the judge has the ability to do is declare that you are now right. You are free from that wrongdoing. He can justify you and make you right. And the way that sinful man can be made or declared right is by being forgiven of everything that is wrong. And that's what Christ's blood does. We are justified by Christ's blood through the forgiveness that the blood makes possible. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14 says, And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, all the stains of sin are gone when they've been washed in the blood of of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now, we've already talked about the idea of redemption. We've already talked about the idea of being forgiven of sins, being made justified, made right or just in God's eyes. All of that is according to the riches of His grace. Since grace means unmerited favor, what Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 is telling us is that we didn't deserve the redemption that Christ died to give us. We don't deserve it. It was something that was given to us by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. By now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when we understand what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about, he's writing and making the point that both Jews and Gentiles can be one within Christ Jesus. And if you go over to Ephesians chapter 1, in the first chapter there, 
and look through the the wonderful list of blessings that are uh, that are described with being in Christ. In verse seven, in Him we have redemption through His blood that we looked at. In Him, in verse ten, in in uh, we are might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In Him, in verse eleven, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have salvation, verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. These are wonderful blessings that are all coming through Jesus Christ. And He gets to chapter 2 and He's telling us of all these things that are blessings of God and God who is rich in mercy, who is rich in love and loved everyone, both Jew and Gentile. In verse 12, He talks about those who were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the Gentiles. That's the group of individuals that were not offering sacrifices according to the law of Moses. But in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once afar off. Gentiles who were outside of any relationship with God like the Israelites. You've been brought near. You've been made nigh, some translations say. You have been brought close by the blood of Jesus Christ. The text is telling us that we have been brought back to God by Christ's blood, by Christ's death. You see, it is our sin that separates us, Isaiah 59, verse 2 tells us. Our sins and our iniquities have separated us from God. We are separated. We who are sinners don't have a closeness, a relationship with God. But it's by the blood of Christ that we can be made close, near. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. John writes, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of, over of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And we read that passage of scripture, we ought to have in our minds the hymn that we sometimes sing, nothing but blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So even though skeptics will scoff, modernists today will mock, and some will even ridicule the gospel, what we described and talked about last evening, of this slaughterhouse religion. I, I tried to imagine. I even pulled up some statistics to, to give us a flavor of feel. It's mind-boggling to me to know the sheer number of animals that are killed just so that we can have substance. Millions of chickens. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about big animals like bulls and goats and, and calves and such. 
number of chickens that are killed. There are those that would look at religion and what we see within the Gospels and the Old Testament and has been described as this slaughterhouse religion, yet even though all those things that are denying the blood of Christ, real Christians believe in the power of Christ's sacrificed blood. We have faith in that blood and the power that it has to forgive sins. Now, before we close our study, I want to think about three ways that we as Christians display our faith in Christ's blood. One of the ways that we do that is obviously by the observance of the Lord's Supper. We mentioned the idea in John chapter 6 of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Reference to the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he made the fruit of the vine that which would symbolize his blood. We know that he had the fruit of the vine, he had the unleavened bread there. They were partaking, eating the Passover feast that had been prepared. He's sitting there with his disciples and he, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he gives it to them. He, they, they take and he, they, he says, now take this in remembrance of me. Takes the fruit of the vine. He says, this represents my blood that is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when Christians drink the cup, they're declaring their faith. They're declaring their fellowship in the blood of Christ. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we partake of the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings, when we partake of the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, eating that unleavened bread, drinking the fruit of the vine, we're displaying our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Another way that faith in Christ's blood is expressed is by the singing of hymns. We just sang, There is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do we think about the words that we're singing, songs like that? We can show forth our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ when we truly sing those hymns and contemplate on what those words mean to a child of God. The hymn that we sing, I am coming, Lord. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. If you really believe in the power of Christ's blood, you can't be ashamed for singing those songs. We can't be ashamed to praise God with songs like that that remind us of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. But perhaps the deepest of all the ways of expressing our faith in Christ's blood is by the confidence that we have in, Christ, in God's forgiveness 
when we do what he requires of us to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Sometimes people have a haunting fear that God still holds sins against them. They might live their life and, and, and have this, this idea in the back of their mind, I, I have sinned so great, I have done things that God just cannot forgive me of those things. We can display our faith in the blood with a confidence, with an assurance, with a knowledge that we are baptized to have our sins washed away. When we commit our life to following Him, confess that faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, when we repent of the sins and we're baptized, we can have a knowledge that those sins are washed away, a confidence in that. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you ought to feel that way. You ought to feel that, that you have sins that are standing between you and God. Because your sins haven't been forgiven. Because you haven't availed yourself of the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ. But someone who's really obeyed the gospel can have the confidence, can have the peace from the assurance of forgiveness because they believe in the power of Christ's blood. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things. To know that God gave His Son and Jesus willingly gave His life. It's an interesting concept to think about. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. Nor did the Romans. Nor did we kill Jesus. I realize that there are lessons that are built around the aspect of why Christ is on the cross. Yeah, Christ was on the cross because the Jews, because of the Romans, because of us and our sins. But when we read in the scriptures that he gave up the ghost, we need to understand that Christ literally gave himself up for us. No one killed him. Jesus gave his life. So faith in Christ's blood is at the core of faith in the gospel. Though someone can believe in Christ's blood and not be a Christian, no one can be a Christian unless they believe in the power of Christ's blood, except they believe in the power of the death of Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we draw this to a close, I want to tell you plainly when it is a person is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So everywhere in the New Testament tells us how to be saved. All the places that tell us how we, what we must do and, and such to be saved, all of those places are telling us how we are saved by Christ's blood because that's the only place that salvation is. But perhaps the, the best place to answer the question of when are we saved by the blood is by looking what, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And this again, in his, in his letter to the Romans, he's dealt in the first part of this book of, about showing that the Jews were in sin and the Gentiles were in sin. But that all can be made right with Christ. And looking at verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The point is, when a person who believes, who has repented, is united with Christ in his death, by being baptized, that he's saved by the blood and dies to sin. The connectedness of baptism with the burial, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, putting to death the old man of sin like Christ was crucified on the cross when he gave his life. Buried, immersed in water like Christ was buried in the tomb. Raised out of the waters of baptism like Christ was raised from the dead. A great illustration of someone being saved by Christ's blood is seen in the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. Three times within the book of Acts where his, the story of his conversion is recounted. I want to point to you the one in Acts 22. In Acts chapter 22, you know the story of while Saul was on the road to Damascus that Jesus appeared to him, asked him the haunting question, why are you persecuting me? Told to arise and go to Damascus and he would be told what to do. He gets to Damascus he meets up with the disciple Ananias. Ananias tells him what is necessary. Tells him why he had seen the Lord Jesus. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Ananias says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now I think it's pretty obvious that Ananias was not saying that 
water was going to wash away his sins. Because Bible students are aware. Those that have faith in God's word understand that sins can only be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no other. It's through the blood that Christ shed on the cross that can save us from our sins. So when Ananias says, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's not the water that's going to wash away his sins. It's the blood of Jesus Christ and the act of baptism. The time when sins are washed away is the time when one arises and is baptized, washing away their sins. If someone has already become a Christian, but backslidden, turned aside from the truth of the gospel, turned aside again to their own wants and desires, has forsaken God, well, he can be saved again by repenting of those sins, confessing those sins, before God Almighty. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's the Christian, that's the faithful, that is doing all they can to stay on the straight and narrow, working diligently toward serving God and being obedient to Him. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, those individuals that have transgressed, those that have turned aside, who have gone back to their own thinking and turned aside from God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we get cleansed? How do we get cleansed after we are a child of God and we have sinned? It's with the blood of Jesus Christ again because again it's the blood of Christ that cleanses sin and he tells us here how we can avail ourselves of the blood of Jesus Christ it's not that we are baptized again to wash away our sins it's when we confess our sins before God when we make changes in our lives to turn back to God God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us again from all unrighteousness. We sing a song. There's power in the blood. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. The hymn that we, if I... I'm getting older. I may not remember this just right, but if my memory serves me correct, the song that has been selected, are you washed in the blood? That's the question that we want to answer. Are you washed in the blood? If you're not a child of God, will you be willing to repent of your sins, confess a faith in Jesus Christ, be baptized in order to have your sins washed away? Are you, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There may be those here tonight that realize I've been baptized in the past and I have been a child of God but I have become unfaithful in my service and in my duty to Him. You can still ask yourself the question are you washed in the blood? Realize 
that when we repent of our sins, when we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us, and He will cleanse us via the blood of Jesus Christ. Staggering to think the power of the blood of one man and what it has the ability to do because of what God has said it will do. If we can assist you in making your life right with God, we bid you come as together we stand and sing.